first part of a bumper-sized, jam-packed, two-part Empire podcast this week, we go in the earth with Reese Shearsmith, hit the heights of In the Heights with Jimmy Smits, and hunt down monsters with Millie Jovovich. All that, plus the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast, it is absolutely positive that Batman would go down. Go down on crime, that is. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, back from an actual day off. It was bliss, folks. My wife and I went to Bath. We ate like a king and a queen. And a shout out to podcast listener Graham Savage, or Savage, I didn't actually ask how he pronounces his surname, who made it possible for Fala and I to attend the theatre. Oh, very nice of him. Much obliged, Graham. Uh, I like this day off. I wish to explore the concept further. Anyway, here I am, back in it, nose to the grindstone, bringing you more award-nominated, but almost certainly, let's face it, going to be award-losing content. And to do that, I am joined by three colleagues, oh yes, three colleagues of such lethal cunning, Geek Queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. GBFN, James Dyer. I have to say, I think Batman would come down on crime as opposed to go down on crime. Not to be semantic, but uh, yes, indeed. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, why would he come down on crime? Well, you know, it's, just, it's, it's, it's more grammatically pleasing than go down on crime. Okay, we need, <laughs> we need to have a long chat about He'd things. He'd come down hard on crime and the causes of crime. <laughs> you said hard. <laughs> okay, we, we, yeah, we seriously need to have a chat uh, about your approach well, and like technique. Like a birds and the bees chat or a <laughs> yes, grammatical like a birds and the bees <laughs> chat uh, in just two seconds. As soon as I introduce the other member of our shadowy cabal. He is, of course, the nicest man in showbiz, especially now that Tom Hanks was found trying to contaminate the entire United States water supply with No, Chris, poison. no, again. No? No, as no? a lawyer, that's not, not a thing that happened. Absolutely not, not true. true. No. Okay. Mm-mm. I'm pretty sure I saw him no, you standing didn't. over a big no. old tank of water with a big old bag saying poison, and he was pouring it in and cackling. No, I think you've been he watching Roadrunner's cackling. cartoons again. He even said, ha, 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 I, Tom Hanks, am no, poisoning the entire... No, did poison? No. It, uh, was he Actually, dressed up as Wiley Coyote at the time? Now I think about it, it might have been a dream. We should, of course, welcome Mr. Ben Travis. Hello, Ben Travis. How are you? Hello, I'm good. Uh, what, what's this about Batman going down, cr- cracking down on crime, going, something about going down on Crime Alley? What's, what's that about? <laughs> Is well, that crime- what they're calling it these days? Yes. Wow. That's the only way he will approach a lady's flower. Uh, he insists upon them calling it Crime Alley. Uh, that's the only way that he will even go down there. Oh, that's so um, wrong. What? What? It's just I, so wrong at so in, many in, levels. In fairness, his, his, his parents went the same way. So you can see why Exactly. <laughs> that's why it's so wrong. Shiny fails in Crime Alley. <laughs> yes. Oh. Anyway, so this is the story that uh, emerged this week where one of the producers, one of the writers of Harley Quinn season three said that Batman, at one point they wanted to have a scene where Batman, how should we say this, pleasured Catwoman orally and then they were stopped from doing so because apparently that's not what heroes do. Heroes don't do that kind of thing. Now, obviously, Twitter has done its thing and done pretty much every conceivable <laughs> joke about this. Nevertheless, we're going to have a quick chat about it. And I have to say, Jimbo, what, what do you mean by come down? The phrase is go down, not come down. And this is a no, family-friendly no, podcast, ta- of course. If you're, if you're, if you're 
tackling crime, you wouldn't if you're if you're tackling something, you don't go down on something, you come down on something. Yeah. But, like I come down on crime, I come down on the causes of crime. That is grammar. Not in this case, because in this case, I'm heavily implying yes. that he is. Um, I, I see. I see what you're implying. I'm simply yes. pointing out the flaws in the grammatical structure of your reference. No, there are no flaws in the grammatical structure of my reference, Helen. I I I would say that you know a, a police force, let's say, cuts down on crime rather than going down on crime. Crime goes down, hopefully, as a result of their efforts, but not, you know. It, uh, anyway, there's a subject and an object thing here going on, and it's, it's oh, very there is all right. Oh, yes. Batman is too busy figuring out semantics to do what heroes should do. <laughs> so what do we think about this? Do we have a theory, grammatical exactitude aside? Do we have a theory about this? I, I do want to discuss this. I should say that a listener called Fertility Fun, at Fertility Fun, uh, is apparently in labor round about now as she's listening to this and she has already sent us a, a tweet saying uh, i'm going to be in labor next week so i'm stuck with whatever you do this week uh, on the podcast to listen to whilst <laughs> i'm having my child essentially could you maybe keep the kindly bang to a minimum <laughs> oh, <God>. and not <laughs> obsess over batman going down see going down james not coming down. Coming yes. down is a very yeah, different, a different thing. Phrase. I'm talking very about different yeah. thing. you cannot go down on crime. You can, you can come down, down on crime. You can try. go down on a person. Yeah, this is Never the whole the point of this debate. Shall this, meet. this is the whole point of the debate. And I'm deliberately using the wrong term for comedic effect. Ugh. Besides, you can absolutely go down on crime. If, if crime were the name of a lady, then I will grant you that point, but not as the abstract noun of crime. No, 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 no. Batman is tonguing crime. That's what I'm saying. Batman is, is giving that a crime. Thing that we say? He's getting a few licks in there, you could say, in the fight <laughs> against crime. That's fair. I'll grant you that. That one works. All right, we'll do that. We'll do as that. Did anyway. Holiest of Holies, Batman, which I liked as well. <laughs> Holy, holiest of holies. <laughs> so, at Fertility Fun, who obviously knows this very, very well, has said, can you upset, not obsess over Batman going down all episodes? So, you know, let's get the foreplay out of the way in the first few minutes oh and and talk about Batman and the, his stance. My understanding of this, having sort of read the actual response, was that it was less to do with the fact that they didn't think uh, that it was a manly thing to do, although we should talk about the fact that that is still a perceived mm. notion somewhere. Uh, but it was mostly the fact they tried to sell toys. And they figured that Batman having performed <laughs> a sex act would make it more difficult. I mean, yeah, you're not going to have, you know, cunnilingus Batman and that's going to be your action figure. It seems unlikely that Hasbro are going to go for that. But um, Fully articulated action figure. <laughs> of course. <Yeah. laughs> oh, God. Um, although, frankly, I would buy that. <laughs> why? Never mind. Why, I do why, do why we want to know that? why? Don't, please don't tell me. It's for but, my collection of, you okay. know, pornographic okay. comic book character toys. <laughs> Has, has, has coming down on crime action. You press the button. I'm do you sorry. remember full frontal Batman? Do you remember the, the, the full frontal Batman, the controversial full frontal Batman? I do not, no. Uh, so Batman was portrayed full frontal with his Robin out in, uh, in an issue. That's wrong. It's absolutely true, in an issue of the comic, and there were complaints, and so the prints of it were altered, so it was in shadow, so you can no longer see it. But if you look Batman on the internet, you can still find... Like. <laughs> Yes, you could still find Batman's throbbing in 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 
Toto. As it were, not literally, not in the what? dog's Toto. Oh, that my would God. Be, oh, oh that's, God. That's, that's a Warner Brothers oh, crossover no. that won't be in Space Jam 2. Oh, God. This is oh. all gone horribly wrong. But I'm just what? saying, it's on the internet. If you Google, and I don't recommend it, Batman's knob, you can find the image of Full Frontal <laughs> Batman from that particular comic. So um, what, what I'm saying is the the the... the Penis has already left the barn, or whatever the metaphor is, and they're trying you know, to shut the cod to... piece after the Indeed. cock is bolted. Okay. Indeed, yeah. that's what James, I'm saying. I'm sorry, I've just googled Batman's knob, and <laughs> all I've come up with is a couple of links for Etsy and an Amazon link for Batman cabinet furniture. So, <laughs> and his batarang is nowhere in sight. No, no, nowhere to be seen. I believe in the evening he, he calls it his Nightwing. I don't know if that helps. <laughs> oh, oh no, that's also wrong. That no. is wrong. That is wrong. I don't like that at all. Um, because well, I guess it's a pun on Dick Grayson, but you know, still. Oh my word! Oh my still word! Still bored, guys. Yeah, Come on. Should, yeah, Helen. Yeah, I mean, look, it's for the ladies. Uh, I, I think it. Oh God, as, as you're the, the spokesperson of, of the ladies. The ladies. Um, I, I think it's perhaps a little bit more graphic than they were obviously comfortable with. But it is weird, isn't it, that um, any perceived uh, kind of lingus, frankly, is perceived as being graphic <laughs> Sorry, in a way faint. that the equivalent is not mm. um, the other way around, and that has led some really, really odd choices vis-a-vis -vis censorship over the years. So uh, you know, a film like Boys Don't Cry with implied cunnilingus was much more heavily censored than any number of sort of American Pie-esque films, which have implied fellatio. So it's it's there's a whole messy history of sexist censorship and sexism in sex acts that is kind of coming into play here. And yes, it does unfortunately put Batman in the same category as DJ Khaled, which is not <laughs> something that any of us ever really wanted. No. Congratulations, Batman. You played yourself. <laughs> Is coming down on crime what Batman does when he stands on top of those buildings? Is he going full oh, Homelander? Oh, ben. oh, come on. Look what Hank's tried to do to the United States water supply, and no, he's actually again, moving he above you. He, apparently he didn't, so there you go. what do I know? Uh, but how you're meant to be the nice one, Ben. I was looking forward to explaining sex to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's weird. I, I didn't mean that. That sounded weird. <laughs> oh, boy. This that is getting weird. really confusing um anyway so helen did obviously bring a, a serious point to this uh frankly juvenile and pure <laughs> so trip sorry. down crime alley i'm so sorry no you're raising the tone no you are you are right you are right to do so and that's why i brought it up in the first place helen not so we could get just some cheap gags and some shits and giggles because we wanted to discuss the depiction of kind of thinkers in <laughs> you know because we're all mature adults and we can all say i think it's can't we? So, so and, mature, and how it is so depicted adult. in movies and or television. Or not depicted, yeah. Or not yeah. depicted, yeah. I mean, in terms of linguistic choices, that is the weird thing about that statement or that response. Like, it's one thing to be like, we, we don't want there to be footage out there of Batman doing whatever. But to say that's not what heroes do, that is what I take offence at. That feels like yeah. a... Um, it's just a weird response. Why would you frame it or phrase it in that way? Yeah, that, mm. that's where they went super duper wrong, basically, yeah. and made it a sort of a, a sexist kind of bizarre thing about masculinity and, and just mm. got really icky about the whole mm. thing. It's, yeah, that up until that point, you know, if they just said, look, we don't want Batman engaging in sex in our cartoons, I feel like people would have been like, I know this isn't a cartoon for adults, but I buy that. Okay, fine. Uh, but yeah, that that's not what heroes do is a little bit more, are you sure about it? Really? 
Yeah. Do you really want to be saying that? My, my favourite tweet, I can't remember who this was from, but my favourite tweet was somebody pointing out that the Batman's cowl literally has handles on the top and it has nothing covering his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it's purpose design. Exactly. Come on. And he was, of course, co-created by Bill Finger. I mean, yeah. Uh. Anyway, enough of this sexy Batman nonsense. It's getting us far too hot under the collar. There's only one way to cool down, and that is by playing the three-fact structure. Hooray! What? I thought you said we weren't having it today. No, I didn't. I said (sighs) the exact opposite. We're going to give facts a good old licking. James said we weren't having it today, but you know what? He don't call the shots in this one. He called the shots on... James? The Pilot TV Podcast. Oh, God. I can't believe I set him up for that one. Uh, So, (laughs) and that's one I can't cut. Damn it. Uh, Yes. So, Helen has obviously just learned of the existence of this week's three-fact structure, which is, of course, the section in which we all, well, my three colleagues of such lethal cunning, bring in a fact, formulated fact, to wow and impress me. And I give a point to the winner. Uh, Who's up first? Ben. I know that you equally weren't uh, really prepared for this. So I'm going to let you go first. Well, I, I did prepare when I then quickly found out that we did have a three-fact structure. Um, and for once, it's not a Disney fact. So it is something else. This was related to um, something that I noticed myself when I was watching a couple of films, uh, not super recently, but I watched them not too far apart from each other. And it really stood out to me. And I'm going to be talking about a pretty recent movie haunted house. If you've seen David F. Sandberg's Really good, underrated uh, horror film, Lights Out. I think that came out 2016, 2017, something around then. Uh, It's a super spooky movie about shadow creatures in a house. And it is exactly the same house if you then go and watch, again, the very good, very underrated Ouija Origin of Evil, the prequel film directed by Mike Flanagan. It is the same house. And they use lots of the same kind of corners and nooks and crannies uh, to deliver those scares. Uh, and this is the Finnis E. Yoakum house in Highland Park in LA. Uh, in Lights Out, they use the interiors and the exteriors in Ouija Origin of Evil. And I think it's also used in the first Ouija film as well. Uh, they just use the interiors, but it's a big kind of creepy old mansion house. Very, very good for spookiness. And in the wake of filming Lights Out, one of the actors, Alexander Persia wondered if they had accidentally cursed this house because uh, they'd been filming a sequence in the basement, uh, a spooky sequence invoking all sorts of spirits in the basement. Uh, And a week after that shoot, he got a call from one of his mates saying, oh my God, turn the telly on now, turn on the news. And the house was on fire in a fire emerging from the basement. Uh, Thankfully, it was put out pretty quickly and the house remained sort of stable and all of that. But yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting that two very recent horror films both shot their spooky house in the same house, and that is the Finnis E. Yoakum house in LA. That is my fact. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff, Ben. James. So I'm going to keep this relatively brief this week, and you should take this as generosity and recognition of the fact that this is a bumper, extra large little podcast and nobody need me filibustering, and not that I may have not put the usual time and effort into preparation of this fact that I normally would. So I want to talk about Friends, the TV series, which of course, I'd find a more natural home on the Pilot TV podcast. But nevertheless, I'm going to bust it out here 
And specifically, I want to talk about the title sequence of Friends, which you will recall sees all six of them cavorting in a fountain. Now, that's not just any fountain. That is a very special fountain. It is a fountain on the Warner Brothers Ranch in Burbank, where many, many things are shot. Many things are shot. But if you pull back, if you look at some of the wider shots, you'll see the buildings behind and the fountain in the foreground looks quite familiar. One of the reasons you may think it it looks familiar is because... Because Robert Neville, a.k.a. Charlton Heston in The Omega Man, which we'll remember is an adaptation mm-hmm. of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend before, you know, I Am Legend. He lived in the house behind the fountain. In fact, he routinely shot at vampire mutant things with a sniper rifle from the balcony of his house behind that fountain. And he fucking died in that fountain after spoiler. being impaled by a spear. He did. Sorry, spoiler for The Omega Man. Uh, unfortunately, you may not notice then, because as he's bleeding out in the fountain, this water's going red and it's all going horrible, it actually looks a bit different. And that's because they brought in a special stunt fountain for that particular moment. So they didn't actually shoot the death sequence in the fountain in front of the house on the, route, on the ranch. They did it in a different fountain. But uh, but that's where he lived. So that fountain, when you see them, when, when you watch Friends, when you see the beginning of that iconic sitcom, when you see them all splashing each other in the fountain, I want you to remember mm. that... Charlton Heston once died. Charlton Heston, the actual Charlton Heston, once bled to death in those very waters, kind of. And nice that they were kicking around just his bloodied water, you know, (laughs) just sharing Robert Neville's blood. I also like to think that when Robert Neville was shooting with his sniper rifle at Mm -hmm. the vampires in that fountain, he was also shooting at, you know, ugly naked guy. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> ugly naked guy's a vampire. Two quick asides. Uh, so I once went to Rome to visit the set of Mark Stephen Johnson's When in Rome. Uh, when in Rome, you have to visit the set of When in Rome, as per the old uh, proverb. And even though Rome is full of incredible fountains, wonderful, wonderful fountains, they had built their own for this this one night, this beautiful, extravagant, lavish Roman fountain that wasn't even real, but it was spouting all kinds of water. So that's it, a quick aside. you're not allowed in the proper fountains? Uh, probably, although in the Trevi. Yeah, yeah. You should never, you should never dive into the Trevi. And the other thing I wanted to say is uh, the reunion of the friends recently uh, had some behind-the-scenes footage of them shooting the fountain, the opening Doing fountain. What, in the fountains? Dance. Yeah, they were they were shooting Charlton Heston in the fountain. They were just. <laughs> Just stabbed him with a spear. It was horrible. When they're dancing around, they are they're dancing on his bloody corpse. This, That's actually are, what's happening. They are they are legend. Again, again, as your lawyer, I'd like to make clear that the friends were in no way dancing on a bloody corpse, and are, as far as we know, not that callous. Uh, I don't know, Helen. The episode title is the I one do. where the friends dance on Charlton Heston's bloody corpse. So I'm <laughs> pretty sure it's it's all there. Uh, but yeah, so I, I hadn't thought of this. I and mean, obviously, obviously. Of course, they would have taken their shoes and socks off to dance in the fountain because there was footage of, I think it was Schwimmer with his, or maybe Matthew Perry with their shoes and socks off. And of course, of course, I just always assumed over the years that they just climbed in fully clothed, but no, they, they, they took their shoes and socks off. Anyway, and that's why I don't do the facts. Yes. Helen. Yes, it is. (laughs) Hi. Yes. Well, if you had just reversed those two stories, this would have been a lovely segue um, because I was going to tell you a fact about Gina Lola Brigida. So no another way. sort of I know another uh, Italian starlet of the sort of Dolce Vita era, a little bit later perhaps. Uh-huh. Um, but I wanted to tell you about a, a, a thing that happened later in her career, quite recently in her life, really, which was her court case against her purported husband because she said he wasn't her husband at all. Have you heard about this? So um, she uh, took up with 
a Spanish guy, Javier Rigao y Raffles, um, who Once was again, 23. I'm sorry, who was 23 when she was 57, um, which he said at the time was a perfect age between a man and a woman. Uh, their relationship went public in October 2006. Um, where he told Hola magazine, which is, yes, hello magazine in Spain, uh, Gina is my life. I have been in love with her divinely during all these years. And she said, I have always had a weakness for young men. So all seemed well, except that two months later, she called off their wedding, which she blamed on intense media scrutiny. Um, and she she said, uh, Javier is desperate. Ever since we've announced this wedding, he has been tormented with lies and slander. He can't take any more. He promised that he would always love and respect his former fiance. But there's some confusion after that. So she claims that they were only ever together for two years. He said they were together for 22. She said they met in 2004, but there are pictures going back to 2000. And then it gets weirder. So in 2010, Rigao went ahead with their wedding using a proxy for Lola Brigida, which he said was was to avoid a media spectacle and that they were happily married and that she knew all about it. She says she only found out about the wedding by chance three years later on some documents she stumbled across on the internet. Um, she had signed a power of attorney, which he she said he used for the marriage, um, which she had given him for a completely different legal matter and which had nothing to do with with marrying her. So he, she actually then filed a lawsuit to get this sort of uh, annulled, basically objecting to the wedding, um, uh, saying that he was a vile person and that the marriage, the proxy marriage, was a vulgar fraud. He then threatened to counter Sue on the basis that she was obviously dragging his name through the mud. And it went through several years of court cases, basically. And in 2017, she lost her court action and the marriage's existence was upheld. And she said she will uh, she will appeal, but I haven't heard anything more about that yet. But yeah, so that's all really there is to it. It's a bizarre marriage by proxy, which apparently, in her account at least, took the bride entirely by surprise. Sure, Helen, but did anyone die in a fountain? Did a house burn down due to alleged demonic activity? <laughs> Both things, probably. <laughs> what? Yeah. How do you Marriage get married? by proxy, people. If you can't be bothered with the stress and, and difficulties of a wedding, just send somebody else to do it for you. Job done. So yeah, so as things stand, basically the court rejected her claim that she didn't know what the power of attorney was for, that she didn't know about the proxy wedding, um, and that they've basically accepted his account of events. So that is where things stand now. But what a weird thing to have happened, you know, um, and what a strange case to have to have come forward. You're not the only one who has a Gina Lola Bridget effect. I have Please, just looked at the Wikipedia page. Uh, which ends with Lola Brigida has a habit of referring to herself in the third person. So you think she wrote that sentence? Does Chris Hewitt think that Gina Lola Brigida wrote that sentence? Chris Hewitt wouldn't like to say. Uh, all right, so three good facts. Well, two good facts and Ben's fact. No, Ben's fact was good. <gasps> Ben's fact was just good. A joke. Ben's fact was good. It was good. I don't like it when there are good facts, when they're really, you know, they're just like a cigarette paper's width between your facts. It's really hard for me to choose. Uh, but I will say, uh, I don't like to give points to James, but I have to give the point to James this week. That's because my fact was the best. 
Thank you to at Green Brendo on Twitter for oh, uh, no. delivering that one. Crowdsourced and a TV fact. A TV fact that was crowdsourced. Yes. It was Chris. a TV film crossover, Ben. It was the perfect synergy of Empire and Pilot. Unbelievable. Hey. If, it, if it helps to know this, that uh, the Griswold's house is also on the Warner Brothers Ranch, as is the, Le- the Lethal Weapon house as well. The mm-hmm. Murtaugh's house is there too. Yep. Yeah. And many others. Yeah. And, of course, Charlton Heston cameoed in Friends. Yeah. His, as we've talked about, his bloodied corpse in the title sequence. <laughs> At one point, you can see Chandler just stomping up and down on top of his head. Going, could he be any more dead? Anyway, that is it. <laughs> okay, so that is it for the three-fact structure. And because it's a bumper-sized, jam-packed edition, we have four guests this week. Four guests. The first one is the wonderful Mila Jovovich, who is the star of Monster Hunter. Yes, indeed, Monster Hunter, the latest movie she's made with her husband, Paul W.S. Anderson, incontrovertibly the best Paul Anderson. And this is an adaptation of the beloved video game franchise. So there you go, in which uh, Mila Jovovich plays someone who hunts monsters. I think I've pretty much nailed the plot of the film there for you. Now, Helen... For it is, it is she, yes. did this interview way, mm. way back in About the dark 65 times. 65 months ago, yeah. Yes, January, in fact. Was it? Cool. I seem to remember her being lovely, but honestly, I mean, I I, I think I was there. Um, That's all I can remember. You were there. You were there. I was there. She cool. was there. Cool. It was on Zoom. So again, yes. we have some sound issues with this, but if you're willing to stick with it, you're going to get Miljovovic being perfectly lovely, and Helen was also present. So here we go. <laughs> Do please enjoy. Hi, Helen. Hey, Mila. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. So yeah, how are, th- how are things? How are you surviving 2020? Um, well, listen, you know, I, I'm definitely luckier than most people. Um, mm. You know, it's it's been really crazy here in America, so... Yeah. Uh, I, I, I definitely am lucky to have my family and everyone's safe. So, you know, just count my blessings. Absolutely. And look, look I have to thank you because I, I watched the film last night. I enjoyed it. And I am just so glad to see things blow up on the big screen again. I mean, you know, I've loved watching like dramas and, and the, the kind of indie movie that, you know, has kept coming out this year and, and they've been great. But I also really miss this kind of just big, fun action movie. It's so good to see it. Well, listen, it's, 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 uh, it's definitely, if you like these kind of movies, it's, uh, it's an <laughs> incredible one. I mean, it's huge. And, and my goodness, like the, the, the filming of it was so exciting. And, and the, the places we went, the locations we filmed at, I mean, everything you watch on that screen is pretty much 99% real. And uh, the monsters are actually obviously made in a computer, but mm. every location was real. Everything was practical. Um, so it was, it was uh, as exciting to film as it is to watch. That's amazing. Had you been to those days? It's like Namibia and South Africa, right? So had you been there before? Well, I, I'd been to South Africa, uh, South Africa before, but never to the locations that we had filmed in. I mean, mm. we were driving hundreds of miles from any human habitation and staying in tent villages. And, you know, it was these really untouched, unfilmed uh, parts of the world that looked so much like the video game and, and, and really looked like these alien landscapes. It was amazing. 
you know, just super extreme. I mean, you understand why nobody lives there because it's just <laughs> impossible. You know, you've got, you know, 50 degrees centigrade during the day and below zero at night, um, crazy insects and bugs and arachnids. And it was, it was a, quite an adventure. Oh my God. It sounds like no acting required in that case. Well, you know, in a way it was, you know, I think a lot of uh, these kind of movies you end up filming on a, on a stage on a green screen and, you know, everything is just about like imagining it and pretending. Um, but it was great because Paul really took us to such crazy places and uh, made us work for it to such a degree that we, it was very easy to connect with our characters and connect with the struggles that we were going through in the script because we were actually going through them in real life. Mm. What kind of temperatures are we talking? Cause it looked, it looked crazy out there. Um, well, definitely it, I mean, it was over, it was definitely over 120 degrees Fahrenheit, which I don't know what that is mm. in a centigrade, but I feel like 50 degrees centigrade, at Good least Lord. look that up. What, what is, what's 50 degrees centigrade? 50, not 50 cent, 50 centigrade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are you kidding? 50 centigrade. Yeah. 122 degrees. I mean, wow. This was normal. And, you know, the fact is, of course, in this movie, there's a lot of explosions. There's a lot of gunfire. There's a lot of, um, you know, things on fire. So, of course, on top of these kind of temperatures, we would be standing next to, like, burning vehicles and fires everywhere. And so, I mean, it was just stifling, especially in our combat gear and in our armor with all the costumes on. It was, oh uh, it was crazy. So, I mean... You know, I, I heard that from the production notes that you, you took some convincing uh, to get involved in this film. I mean, I'm guessing it wasn't, you know, any hesitation to work with the director. You guys obviously have a, a very good relationship. But, um, but what was the hesitation? Was it, was it, you know, did you not know the game at that point? Were you not sure? What was it that made you wonder? Um, you know, for me, I guess we had just wrapped up Resident Evil and I was mm. fighting zombies and, and to... You know, Paul had never, he'd been involved with this game for over a decade and he'd been uh, doing different iterations of the script and, you know, uh, me being the star of, was never a question uh, with any of them. I mean, at one point he had written it for like a 14 year old boy. So I, I, I just never, he had never said anything to me about me being in the movie and, um, <laughs> You know, uh, and of course, I just thought for sure, like, after fighting zombies, he's not going to have me fighting monsters now. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, kind of. You've done your job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. It just it just felt like, uh, I don't know. It just felt like funny or strange or just like, I don't know. It's just like people are going to be like, really? I mean, again, like doing this? But, um, you know, he... Uh, he had me read the script and, you know, I mean, definitely he's my husband in the sense he knows what I like and he knows um, the kind of characters I'm drawn to. And to have me play a female army ranger uh, was definitely something that I've always wanted to do. You know, my, I, I come from a long line of uh, military families on, on both my father and my mother's side. So I I always joked if, if I wasn't an actress that I, I probably would have joined the military myself mm -hmm. um, just to keep in the tradition. And uh, so, you know, it was just, it was just a, a really great opportunity for me to be able to play a soldier. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And, you know, but at the same time, I, I, I said to Paul, I said, listen, you, why don't you just like open your circle a little bit? I mean, you know, there's so many other actresses in Hollywood that would be happy to kill monsters for you. (laughs) You know, give me a chance to like find other scripts and and do other things, uh, you know, after killing zombies for so many years, like I need a little bit of a break too. But I'm, you know, in the end, I'm so happy that I did it. And it was such an incredible experience. And, Mm. and, uh, you know, I, I love him so much for always thinking about me and wanting to work with me. Well, yeah, I mean, it, 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 um, it's great that way that you get to kind of hang out together on set, I suppose. But I mean, and tell me about Artemis, your character, because, you know, she's, she's very different from, you know, Alice, most obviously in the Resident Evil movies. Like, she, this is a, a soldier. She's very grounded and she feels, um, she feels really tough, but also, you know, she's massively out of her depth in a way that, you know, very few of your characters have a comfortable life, but you know, she seems to have a particularly difficult one. You know, the thing that I, 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 uh, I loved about this character was her relatability and mm. the fact that she was a real woman, you know, there, you know, in the past with Alice, with Lilu, the, they were these bigger than life kind of supernatural characters that were almost like, um, animated or like straight out mm. of a comic book. Um, and that has its place for sure. But, you know, to be able to play a woman who's just extraordinary, um, but still real and still relatable, you know, was was so much fun because I got a chance to train um, with amazing teams of soldiers uh, at an army base outside of Los Angeles doing uh, these incredible like combat simulations and I got to meet a real female army ranger who I became friends with and you know, talk to for hours and days and days and weeks, you know, just talking about her experiences and what it was like to, um, to go through the, the, the ranger test to, 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 to have to like go through all of that training, you know, what made her do it and, mm. and how it was to survive that. And, um, you know, th- there's only a few hundred women have been able to pass the, the, and get their ranger tags. So, she she yeah. really is like a real life superhero. So it was interesting for me to actually to to talk to somebody that has been able to survive so much mm-hmm. and to do such extraordinary things in her life, um, but still be a normal person and a really wonderful, funny, pleasant, you know, great human who's mm-hmm. a mother and 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 just somebody who's a friend, you know, but at the same time, she's extraordinary. Um, so it, it gave such a reality to the character for me. And, um, it really gave me something to hold on to that was very close to my heart and, and, you know, that I, I very much empathized with. Yeah. She sounded amazing just reading about her. My God, to have, uh, to have gone through all of that. Um, and you know, per Artemis like goes through quite a lot as well. I, I like that she didn't instantly, you know, realize that they were in another world. You know, I, I felt like that was kind of a realistic in a way that sometimes these films aren't, you know, they're just like, oh, we're in a different dimension. Something must have gone wrong. Instead, you know, this film felt very grounded in those early scenes. And then of course, a gigantic monster erupts from the sand. <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, definitely there was a lot of talks about how to deal with that, you know, especially <laughs> when, um, 
you know, the, uh, the Captain, Captain Malou, who was the, the army ranger uh, who, who came, who I'm friends with. And he, she came uh, with her husband to South Africa to be our military advisor and, and to train all of us um, on how to act like a team and, and really, you know, feel like a team that worked together many times before. You know, that was, that was so many of the questions that I asked her was like, really, like, what would you do in this situation? Like, what, what would you say? Because like, you're not just gonna be like, oh, you know, we must have gone into another dimension. I mean, come on, like, how would you actually react to this? Because, you know, this is, this is crazy. You know, you start in one place and suddenly, you know, your, your brain would naturally be, trying to like normalize things as much as possible. Um, you know, it takes a lot for people to, you know, people aren't just going to go, Oh, of course it's aliens. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you would, you would think it's anything but aliens. It's anything mm-hmm. but monsters. Like I'll, I'll, I'll try and normalize it, you know, till the day I die um, <laughs> before I admit that something supernatural has happened, you know? Uh, and what's it like working with with monsters as opposed to zombies? Like, you know, is it a very different scale of effects? Is it a very different feel? Or did this feel like, oh, it's another day at the office. I'm fighting a gigantic, awful thing. Um, listen, I mean, doing doing the kind of films that I do never feels like a day at the office. Period. <laughs> you know, it's it's it feels like a entering into a magical universe. It's mm. it, it's makes me you know it's it's something that I feel like my whole life as a kid I was always like looking for a doorway into another world and reading books about magic and fantasy and sci-fi and so to be able to live it you know as a job is Mm. is extraordinary because you know I it's it's like this it really answers to that kind of escapist part of myself that always wanted to live in these alternate universes and stuff um, but you know, on a technical, on the technical side, like logistically speaking, you know, when we did like Resident Evil, of course, the zombies were people and sure. actors that you could interact with. Um, so there was a lot more uh, stunt rehearsal involved in that sense. You know, if you did have to fight uh, with one of these creatures, you know, you'd have a stunt person that you would have a choreographed routine you know, timing was, you know, always the key because you don't want to actually hurt anybody or get hurt yourself. Um, you know, with this, it was different because of course, you know, we didn't have real monsters. Um, but the, the great thing was, was Paul, um, really was able through, I think the locations, especially, um, because the locations were real and because we really had to survive like the, the extremes that we went through, we kind of were already halfway in that world already as actors, mm. but then also he um, he would come up with things like he like one of the things that he did to make it more real for us was he created these like sand cannons, and you'd have like the you'd have like the guys responsible for the sand cannons. So every time like the quote unquote monster would run by us, they would shoot sand cannons at us. That would be like. <laughs> tons of sand being blown straight at you, which would like make you fly back because of the velocity and the weight of it. And, um, 
you know, so you would, you would actually feel like this monster was like running at you or stomped right next to you because there'd be this huge explosion of sand. And um, so that made it so much more interactive in that sense, yeah. made it easier for us to imagine like how extreme the situation would be in reality. Speaking of extraordinary people to work with and things to work with, uh, Tony Jaa, you get to, you know, fight alongside him. That's pretty incredible. Um, were you, you know, you've done a lot of action in your career, but, you know, how did you feel kind of going on set next to that guy? I, I have to say it was one of the most humbling experiences in my career to work with Tony because, um, you know, he literally, you know, he is yeah. like a magical person in himself. <laughs> like, you know, he, he can do everything that he does in the movies in real life. Like he, you know, he doesn't use wires. He doesn't, wow. you know, he doesn't need like all of that. Like when he does all of those crazy butterfly kicks and spins and things, he doesn't do it on wires. He actually does it himself. So to be able to, to do these stunt rehearsals with him and see him doing these moves over and over again, I mean, it felt like the guy just has unlimited stores of energy and the power that emanates oh. from him is, is unreal. It was, it was incredible to be able to, to, work alongside of him and, and watch him work and, and learn from him and just, you know, be able to like fight with him. And, you know, it, it was, it was, it was incredibly humbling and just so exciting. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. And, you know, on top of all of that, he's just like such a fun person and such a down to earth, like cool guy, you know, we'd be talking and, you know, he would like do a backflip and then go into like some tie wrap. And, you know, he was just so much fun, you know, such a great energy on set. And especially when you're in these crazy extreme locations and, you know, it's, it's not easy. I mean, you know, you don't have like the creature comforts around you. You have to walk like through the sand for, you know, half a mile just to get to like the porta potty. You know, it's, it, it was, it was, everything was like an effort on set, you know, yeah. and to have somebody be so chill and happy and smiling and um, just a great energy is so important because you, you don't want to have to deal with like diva behavior and people complaining all the time. And I mean, of course, it's so easy to complain, <laughs> but you know, it's the, the fact is everybody has to work together and it's hard for everyone. So, you know, you just have to kind of laugh at the situation and, and, um, enjoy yourself. And, and Tony is one of those people. So I was super grateful I mean, everybody that we worked with actually just was so, such team players and, and really were so wonderful and, and sweet and understanding and just game for the whole adventure, you know? Absolutely. How was his rapping? I have it. I, you know, I, I wanted to post it on Instagram, but you know, <laughs> I never actually asked his permission to. Um, so I have to DM him and uh, and see if he'll let me. But it was amazing. Are you kidding? You you should look him up on on YouTube because I think he he's fully like a singer too. Like he's got like crazy videos. Amazing. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Um, well, listen, thank you so much. Um, fingers crossed that there are more monsters to hunt in your future. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're you're racking up the kills now. It's uh, it's got to keep going. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. Nice talking to you. Evening. You too. Cheers. Bye. 
So that was me, Leovovich. We will be discussing Monster Hunter later in the show. And if you like more Monster Hunter conversation, then Helen also recorded a spoiler special chat with the film's director, Paul W.S. Anderson. Uh, and that, along with some of us giggling idiots talking about the movie, will be available for spoiler special subscribers in the next couple of weeks. So there you go. All right. All right, so now it is time to tackle this week's question, which comes from at DJ Buds or Buddes on Twitter. DJ B U D D E S is how he spells his name. And he asks movies where the main character has gone on a break or is missing at a vital stage of the show. So this is, you know, because cause I went away last week, you see, because I'm the main character. God, what have you what have you encouraged, DJ? Seriously. Yes, thank you, DJ. Chris Hewitt. So, any answers for this one, folks? Movies where the main character has gone on a break or disappeared from the action. Now I don't think again, let's lay down some ground rules. I'm taking this not to mean movies in which the main character gets killed unexpectedly halfway through and then another character takes over as a protagonist. I'm mm. talking about movies where there is a main character and then the main character disappears or becomes something other than the main character for a while and then comes back to themselves. But they're still there at the end of the well, movie. What about resurrections, though? Okay, well, throw them at me. Throw them at me and then we'll discuss them. I mean, like, I mean, if we take the Lord of the Rings as one movie, then Gandalf, arguably, it's probably not the case, but it's arguable. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is arguable. Is it arguable he's the main character, though? Well, that's what I'm saying. That's the bit I'm saying is arguable. Okay, well, let's argue it. Well, okay then. Okay, I mean- you start. <laughs> he has he has the ring at the. Oh no, he doesn't have the ring at the beginning, but he gives the ring to Frodo. Ben, have you seen these movies? <laughs> Lord of the, Lord of the he, what? <laughs> he oversees the giving of the ring to Frodo. He um, identifies the ring for what it is. He mm-hmm. leads or it guides the quest to Rivendell. He sort of manipulates the formation of the fellowship at least to some extent he he leads the fellowship yeah and then he falls into darkness you know fighting mr sudi dude um and then you know comes back like leveled up um ready to but take boring. it on again crucially when he comes back he's boring how dare you he's gandalf yeah gandalf, gandalf the gray is better than mm. gandalf the white he also i mean he also does like fuck off during the Hobbit movies but in in the sense there you know at least we do see the side quest so that probably doesn't count Helen we all checked out during the Hobbit movies it's not <laughs> do you know what I rewatched them recently and while everything I ever said about them you know being unnecessary still stands they are well made I will give them that but it's just the way every single sort of throwaway line of action is turned into a 10 minute fight scene that I think I find quite Irritating it's at times. almost as if they tried to take a very small children's book and stretch it over three gargantuan movies. Yeah, it mm. is a bit like that. It yeah. is. Look, let's get back to the question, which yeah, is sure. characters that disappear for large portions of the film. I'm saying Kevin Bacon in Hollow Man. Uh, <laughs> <hey>. <laughs> oh boy. All right. Okay. Yeah, there he is, Captain Pedant. There he can <laughs> applying his powers of grammar once again. <laughs> He's come down on this question. <laughs> I have. <laughs> He's given it a good scene too. Um, of course, the the movies is the, the for James. It is movies where the character has gone on a break or is missing. Amy Dunn in Gone Girl. <laughs> That's a good call. That's a good one. That's a good one. All right. Although, is she the main character before it's that? It's literally called Gone Girl. No, but that doesn't matter. That's not, that's not how it works. That's not the naming sure convention. Is. I don't know what you're talking about. It's it's a film that does a difficult thing in that it shifts protagonists, but like it's not 
I don't think she's the protagonist and then disappears. I think she isn't the protagonist and then sort of arguably maybe Reappears. to some degree becomes one. Yeah. Question, can you be can can you be the protagonist and not be the main character? Technically I'm sure you can, but I'm trying yes. to think of an example. Yes. yes. I mean, one yes. of mine might fall into that category. One of the ones that immediately sprang to mind for me was uh, uh, Shoshana, Melanie Laurent's character mm. in Inglorious Bastards. She is mm. easily, for me, the main character. The movie begins with her. It ends with her. She is the one who does mm -hmm. all of the inciting incidents of the film. And yet, as far as the sort of marketing and everything for that film was concerned, Brad, Brad Pitt was the main character of mm. that film, even though he's... In it, I think for less amount of time than her. Obviously, you have that whole La Louisienne section of the film, which is totally incredible, but just like a full half an hour sequence away from uh, Melanie Laurent and everything else that's happening in the sort of uh, Nazi hunting action. So that one really stood out to me. The other one that also might kind of come into this category is I've fairly recently, for the first time, watched The New World, Terence Malick's mm -hmm, The New World. Mm -hmm. And Captain John Smith, uh, oh, well, obviously this is the sort of Pocahontas story, and uh, for so much of that film you are following Captain John Smith, played by Colin Farrell. Uh, he is sort of one of the uh, pioneers who meets Pocahontas, but then halfway through, or about two-thirds of the way through, he's like... I'm just going to fuck off on a boat. Uh, and we stick with Pocahontas. <laughs> I and, dialogue, folks. <laughs> and no, I thought Malik sort of lost his touch with that bit, to be honest, because um, the rest of it's really realistic. And then and the Irish that, I'm going to fuck off on a boat. If that's right with you. <laughs> felt like authentic Colin Farrell, if not authentic Pocahontas story. Yes. Uh, but yeah. And then from there, uh, Christian Bale comes in and she has a kid with Christian Bale, but he does pop up at the end. Uh, Captain John Smith, they sort of meet up in England and he's like, do you know what? I maybe regret fucking off on that boat. So that for me was a, a, a clear example of like main or at least very, very central character who's in it for a lot of the film and then buggers off for the last hour and pops up five minutes from the end. Okay, another one where it's not the central, central character, but like a main character. This is going to be your spoiler warning for Sound of Metal. And I'm going to give you a few seconds if you've not seen Sound of Metal to pause this podcast and go and watch Sound of Metal or skip forward. I'll keep it fairly brief. Uh, this is your spoiler warning. Okay, everyone's gone. Lou, the Olivia Cook character in Sound of Metal, I, th I thought it was so impactful that obviously you're with her and Riz Ahmed's character uh, for the first, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour of that film, you really get to know the rhythms of their relationship. And then when he goes to the um, community of deaf people, he part of the stipulation of that is that she has to leave. And when he goes to see her again, when they catch up, she is completely changed. She has effectively sort of become a different person. Uh, and he arguably has too. Uh, so I thought that was a really interesting, obviously Riz Ahmed's character is the central character of that, but I was thinking yeah. of main characters who who are established at the start of the film as like, this is a, a big central character of this film who then just leaves. That feels different to me. That feels like he's the protagonist and he goes off and mm. essentially on his adventure is the wrong word in that case horrific <laughs> horrifically so but his journey and then when they meet again they're both different people that, that doesn't feel to me like a you know it's not like the the case where you, I, I feel like the question is more the guy who pops up again with the guns at the end having been pretty much forgotten about like there's a character in nobody arguably who fits that template um again no spoilers but sort of not main character, but there is a there is a side character who sort of disappears long enough that you've kind of forgotten that they exist, and then boom, guns. Yeah, I mean this is a tricky question to answer 
actually, isn't it? Especially in the confines of a movie. I think Jimbo may be weighing in soon with some TV examples because it's easier in a TV show over the, the course of a long season, whether it's, you know, six episodes or 23 episodes, you can have an actor go on hiatus for a while. You know, both Mulder and Scully left the X-Files, for example. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> yeah, so you, you could do that. It's more difficult within the confines of a two-hour movie for your main character to leave the movie and then come back and still be the main character without, of course, being killed. I have a few examples, though. I have a few examples sure. I'm going to throw at you. You will not be surprised to know that one of those examples is Evil Dead 2. What? Because in that movie, there is a portion of that movie, at least five minutes, maybe even ten minutes, where Ash, played by Bruce Campbell, becomes possessed by the Deadite Force, and the movie hands over protagonist duty to Annie, and Ash becomes the threat for a good, good chunk of screen time. So there's one. Um, don't worry, it all works out in the in the in the end for Ash. But that is definitely that's one. Um. Another one I'm going to suggest of Chris's uh, grab bag of movies I'll, I'll constantly name on the podcast, The Shawshank Redemption. The Shawshank Redemption, and again, you can have a, a discussion about whether Red or Andy are, is the, the main character. Red narrates it. Red ends it. But Andy is, I would argue, the main character of the movie. And there's a point in the movie, I don't know if you've seen The Shawshank Redemption, but there's a moment where... Uh, Andy Dufresne disappears from the narrative of the story, and he disappears from the narrative of the of, from his friends' lives as well in the Shawshank prison. Uh, and Red takes over the protagonist duties of that one. So I would throw Shawshank Redemption in there as well. There's also a little bit. There's a portion of John Carpenter's The Thing where Mac is off screen for a little bit. And you're, they're trying to up this, the tension levels and up the suspicion levels. Is Mac one of the things? Has he been subsumed? Has he been assimilated by this beast? And I'm also going to throw in Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom, because there's a point in that where Indiana Jones is essentially possessed and becomes some sort of weird zombie Indiana Jones. And that's a good chunk of screen time. Once again, that's oh, a so decent chunk of screen counts? time. I'm going to throw in possession and say possession oh. counts, because Indy, even though Indy is... On screen at that point, once again, he becomes the threat. Uh, mm. Once again, the the protagonist duties in that 10, 15 minute chunk of the movie pass to uh, Short Round and to Willie Scott. So I'm going to say that one. And we've been remarkably estranged so far, but not really mentioned in the MCU. But I would say Black Panther. There's a point in that movie where T'Challa is off screen. Again, it's a good five to ten minute chunk. And then he comes back all triumphant and all heroic and ready to kick ass. So that would be my MCU vote. Captain America doesn't turn up until a good like half hour into Avengers Infinity War, you know, which was confusing. So yeah. maybe that as the well. The main character of the MCU the in, in Hell and The main character of the MCU, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> James, do you have any, any, any suggestions for this one? Serious suggestions, none, none that I have not already given you. Uh, no, not really. No not, TV not, people. Not no TV oh, people who've left. But as you say, it doesn't really count. Like because, as you said, people people disappear for periods of time in TV shows all the time. Uh, it's almost par for the course. Like Oftentimes Starbuck when they disappeared in Battlestar Galactica for a indeed, bit. Indeed, yes, oh. indeed, and then returned. Or did she? Or, or did, did she? Did she? I still don't know what happened there. No, I, don't I still don't it, understand. It, that. I don't think Rogers <laughs> did either. Yeah, not entirely clear. Was she an angel? It's never really made clear. Oh. Um, Commander, is it Sheridan in Babylon 5? Uh, yes, indeed. Travels in time is a whole thing. He came back. Anyway, it was cool. But right. he and was... then obviously Sinclair vanishes completely, but yeah. uh, with good reason. 
it's it's obviously very brief in terms of like episode time, but but Buffy is gone for a mm. while. She is she is dead, and they're trying to figure out what to do without yeah, her. And they have the Buffy, Buffy box Buffy, which didn't, uh, yeah. kind of taking the place. Yeah. Obviously, that that kind of is quite quickly resolved in terms of screen time. I would say that there are significant portions of Endgame where the main character Thanos isn't present on screen. So, you know, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have brought it up. I should not have brought it up. (laughs) It's because in true Crank 2 style, he was dead, but then he got better sort of in the past. Yeah. Anything else? Any more for any more? Like I say, this is a tricky one. It's a tricky question, Mm -hmm. DJ Bettis, but I think we've given it a, a good old go. Yeah, I mean, look, you can argue about practically all TV shows. I mean, you know, the moving to the campaign in The West Wing meant that the actual president took a bit of a backseat in some episodes. But, you know, he wasn't gone, gone. He was just kind of sharing a bit. Every season of The Wire means that you can sort of follow different characters, but then they come back. Obviously, Presbolewski is Mm -hmm. major in season one, but then it's not really until season four, is it, that he comes back? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the biggest departure in the wire is McNulty in season two, mm. who is barely in it. Of course. Yeah. yeah. He's barely in season four as well, isn't he? He's, well, he's much in less more, so, yeah, because that's much yeah. more about prayers and the school kids. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting one. The the main character of, I mean, the Fast and Furious franchise has got by without yeah. its yeah. main character, Han Solo, for a couple of movies now. <laughs> so he, we're, they're about to rectify that big time, which is uh, which is good. Yes. It's exciting. Because Vin, Vin took the whole of two off and almost all of three off before returning. Mm-hmm. He did. He did. Yeah. yeah. What a boon. What a boon for everybody. Well, listen, I think we've we've answered our question to the best of our ability. If you want to have your question read out on the Empire podcast uh, as DJ Bed is, I'm hoping I pronounced that right. If I'm not, then please do let me know. Found to his cost, get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. Slide into my DMs or just reply to one of my tweets or wait for a panicked shout out every now and again. Although, again, I must stress, I think we're good for the next couple of weeks. I think we have some questions in the old question bank. And it's time to round off the first part of this two-part episode with our second guest this week. It is Reese Shearsmith. Not on to talk about the latest triumphant series of Inside Number 9. Oh no, although we do talk about that a little bit. He's here to talk about his latest collaboration with Ben Wheatley. They've worked together in the past on a field in England in which something terrifying happened to Reese Shearsmith in a tent and High Rise in which nothing terrifying happened to Reese Shearsmith in a tent, but Reese Shearsmith was pretty terrifying in that movie. And now they're back with this week's very weird, very scary in the earth in which, yes, again, something weird happens with Reese Shearsmith in a tent. He wasn't in a tent, thankfully, when I talked to him on Zoom a couple of weeks ago. He was in his home. Much safer. Much safer. Uh, always have a blast talking to Reese. He is good people. Here we go. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by the star of In the Earth, Mr. Reese Shearsmith. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent. It's good to have you here. Um, and uh, how has been your pandemic race? Because you've been you've been very busy, not least, of course, making this movie. Yeah, it's been, you know, I'm very lucky to when I was unable to act because we got we were doing we were three days into filming series six of Inside Number Nine and we had to stop it due to the plague. And then we <laughs> uh, were in the lockdown time, but we were very fortunate because we knew we had series seven to have to write 
so we start we immediately just started right so well, well let's well, now we've got this break let's get ahead of ourselves and start writing some new episodes because of course number nine never seems to end so it's just relentless content of new stories so we would try we wrote some more episodes um throughout the summer and uh march march april may and then in the meantime suddenly in the earth started to creep up as well and that was going to happen but i never really quite believed it so i've been fine because i was writing all the way through yeah and then we, I, I did some acting with with Ben in, in the middle of the summer, right in the middle of the lockdown. I think we were the first people to creep out and do it. But uh, <laughs> so I was very lucky because it never really felt like, you know, despite the fact that acting seems to be the most frivolous, non-essential item, it, it, um, we didn't, we were able to continue, you know, safely and, and carefully. And um, it, it's been a godsend to think that we've, and then when I wasn't doing that, I was writing. So I've been busy. I've not been completely sort of, like a caged animal. And anyway, <laughs> I don't go out anyway, Chris, so it doesn't matter to me. You don't? No, no, I'm in all the time. You're hermetically so sealed. Yeah, nothing changed. That's it. It's a writer's life, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very sedentary, <laughs> solitary... Uh, I mean, I've got Steve, so we do meet and we meet in an office, and that was strange because we wrote remotely, which we've never done before. So we were on a Zoom, on a call with a FaceTime and, and the... And the the page that final draft up on both of our computers and we wrote like that and that was very we've never done it before it was very strange because it was it concentrated the mind but it wasn't much fun I don't think because you realize a lot of writing is is when you're not writing it's the off bits and you did the chat before and after and the fact that you, you're sort of procrastinating that's where you start to think and you're chatting away and thinking of things and it makes you very much an island doesn't it when you're on zoom you're just this it, it sort of it boils down the essentials of what you, why you're there. You so there's no sort of getting around it. It's like, right, let's get to work. So I suppose it distilled our work ethic. We worked hard, probably shorter hours in the day than we would have done in real life because it was like, it was exhausting. Yeah, it was, we would start in the morning, nine, 10, and then we would be done at two or something. We'd sometimes be done at 11 or go, right, forget it. It's too hot or whatever it might be. So um, yeah, it, but we managed to get some more episodes done. So series six and seven ended up being a, have ended up being a mismatch, sort of mix and match of, yeah. of episodes that were going to be series six and seven. So it's all been a bit jumbled up according to what we filmed because they suddenly wanted them. BBC were, ran out of content and they were like, can we please have them? Because they were repeating 1989. <laughs> all of it in its entirety from the beginning I noticed that yeah with uh, with live commentaries as well yes, uh, right. <laughs> so did you find did you find that the, the real life situation the pandemic was beginning to seep into number nine as you were as you were writing it well we we had an adverse reaction to it because we very quickly when we looked and saw everything was being made and dramas were being created with zoom calls and things and is Amma turned on and all those stupid jokes that people were making, thinking they were the first to make them. We saw them. Well, someone was. Someone was, Someone would have been the first person to make that joke. Yes, someone did it. And it was very funny when it happened, but then not the 900 <laughs> time you see on another incarnation. True. So we were very quick to think, don't do that. That would, be, that would tire very quickly and become very much of its time. And we didn't want to look like we were just, you know, we were always trying to think... To, to make them special and we just thought it, it won't it will be a, such a done thing to to 
if it finally arrives on TV and it's a Zoom one. Inside Number Nine is claustrophobic and, you know, it's suited to, to exactly this situation, I guess. I think people were expecting, a, oh, my God, is it going to be a lockdown one? No, because you're expecting. So we very quickly jettisoned it to think, well, let's not do the obvious. There was a time nearly when we thought of an idea and, and the BBC said, will you do one? And we were going to, we had something that was quite good and then we didn't do it because it just got, we then even thought it's just past the point of it being, um, you know, it, it, current. And we just thought it's not, no one wants to see it. Everyone's in it for real life. It's too soon. You're in it during it. You don't want to be, uh, I know there's mirroring life, but that was, you don't want that thrown back at you. <laughs> so we didn't we went ag- actively the other way and we filmed like you know the, ep- the episodes that are going out now you wouldn't know that we were socially distant we didn't have to socially distance it wasn't like EastEnders where you see them like why are they not why is that at the back of a doll's head <laughs> or whatever it might be why is that man kissing a doll oh right it's because he can't go near the lady yeah so we were just uh, yeah very much um, reacting against it we just thought let's just do some good stories take people out and away of this and not um, dwell on it. Ben, however. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Ben Ben has leaned into it in a really interesting way. I, I yeah. railed in the early weeks of the pandemic on the podcast, I railed against Prospect because I, I, I know how the industry works and I know that it's going to be a ton of yeah. very bleak uh, you are there, pandemic dramas, and I love I love Paul Greengrass. But if he makes a pandemic drama, I'm uh, it's oh. going to be like waiting through trickle for me. And I I love the man and I love his work, but that's going to be a hard sit. Um, but yes. the really interesting work for me that's resulted from the pandemic have been things like Rob Savage's host, which yeah. takes it as a jumping off point, and Ben does that and goes in this really weird, phantasmagorical, surreal allegorical science versus nature route with within yeah. the earth. And that must have been something he said to you from the off. He did. I mean, I'm always, I marvel at Ben that he can keep it all in his head because it's, it's none of it's by accident, you know, and he very much had a plan right from the start as to what this would be. I mean, it's sort of, it's so many different things, isn't it? The film starts out like some sort of weird, like midnight run. And then in the middle, it's, <laughs> Texas Chainsaw, and they end. It's Quatermass. You know, it's very. Yeah. It, it goes very different in, in a place you never would think. And he, yeah, he had a. I think he he was inspired by. He's always great. I mean, he knows not to make. He doesn't try try to attempt to make a, a film in fourteen days with Spider Man. You know, he couldn't do it, but he knows he can do. The limitations are the thing of it, and he, he embraced the challenge. I think he needed to write it. He's one of these people that have got so many plates spinning and he can do lots of projects. I'm terrible. I can't do that. I don't know how he does it, but he's got all these different notions. And I think it just occurred to him that he, I think he felt like, how can anything, how can you do anything that doesn't address this now in this world that we're in that's, that's had this thing? And like you say, it was a jumping off point because then it gets into, like you say, science and storytelling and the fact that we as creatures have to give ourselves an explanation and a narrative of what what was going on and in in extreme times it's strange to where people's minds will go to sort it out for themselves you know i think yeah. zach is an example of he's worked it, that's his explanation is what he's doing in the woods and why it's happened he's, he's got it all sorted in his head and it's it's a very <laughs> it's strange because it's a very earthy sort of 
um, religion, religious sort of uh, route, where his his counterpart, Dr. Wendell, is the science version of it. So you meet these two people that have got very opposing explanations for the narratives that humans tell themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was Saka stumbled down many rabbit holes, and <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what has emerged on the other side is is terrifying. He's he obviously doesn't have a Wi-Fi connection in this movie, but I imagine if he did, he'd be on some sort of deep web message board, <laughs> pontificating. Yeah. I think he probably believes in a lot of conspiracy theories. Yeah, yeah. But it was great because I had my lockdown beard anyway, and I was like, oh right, if I'm playing this, then I'll just keep going. <laughs> Because <laughs> it seemed right that he would have a beard, but uh, yeah. So I, you know, we got I got the call from Ben in. I think it was April. He said what he was doing something, uh, and he I said what are you doing? Because it was just like what are you doing? And he said I'm writing a horror, and I was like oh great. Well, if there's a part in it for me, and he said there is. So then I was like oh fantastic. Well, that, if that happens, that'd be great. But like I say, I never really thought it would. I thought this is just therapy for him. It's good. He's writing a nice little horror film for himself. Mm. And we won't do it. And then it slowly but surely it was coming together. And then in May and then in June, and then it was the dates set in August. And I was like, are we really actually? And then there were COVID tests and it was actually happening. And he got, got together a crew. And we were this, this little bunch of 25 people that went out into the world. And it was such an extraordinary experience. I mean, it was very much field in England experience all over again because it was outside and it was, you know, it felt like um, Zach is definitely a, a descendant of. Of Whitehead. In fact, his surname in the in the script is Zach Whitehead. Oh, really? So I, there is definitely a link in his mind. I mean, he's very oblique, Ben. He won't ever tell me anything, but that is a certainty. Yeah, that there is certainly some connection between the two films. Interesting, because there's there's a, an obvious connection as well, which is never get into a tent with Reese Shearsmith in a Ben Wheatley movie. <laughs> yep, even at, in Bake Off. Which I- <laughs> <laughs> Which inexplicably I won, <laughs> but nothing bad happened in that tent. That was just proof. <laughs> you didn't emerge with this frightful look on your face. Uh, yeah, with- exactly, yeah, Paul Hollywood in the corner. <laughs> yeah, tethered to Paul Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> so, what sort of conversations did you have with Ben then about about the character? And uh, I don't know if you can see behind me, for example, but there's a a poster I've yet to put up because I'm terrible at DIY. But there's a poster of John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, which uh-huh. is another movie about, it's one of my favourite Carpenter films, and it's another movie about the collision between science and nature and faith and religion. And Yes. And it obviously invokes, you know, his his pen name for that movie, he wrote it, was Martin Quatermass as well. So it's it's a movie right. that very much goes back to all the Nigel Leal stuff as well. Yeah. Um, so were those the templates, the touchstones, a little bit of phase four in here as well, I'm, I'm discerning? Were yeah. those the conversations you had with Ben about this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not not so directly as to like I'm gonna I'm doing a Quatermass or I'm doing. I think he never really likes to say I'm, I've I've magpied from this or that. But certainly the films he was watching were were those. Yeah, and and John Carpenter and his very early film work ethic of how quick he made them. Mm. I think really inspired Ben to think. Well, we it's possible to do it. And but he wanted he definitely wanted to explore a film that ends up being the the, the light and the sound are the thing of it rather than the, the the means to an end it was like that becomes front and center of your experience of watching the film you know there's i don't want to say anything about the ending but the, mm. the sort of the way that we end up in this weird mad again a bit like field in england that ends up sort of eating itself as a film it ends up being this strange 
it's a bit like a mem- is it what's the film with um Christopher Walken when he puts the machine on his head and it, it, it films his is it brain brainstorm yes remember that film yeah. when it, and some and is it it's Louise Fletcher puts it on just as she's having a heart attack yes. and films dying and going where you go that is the sort of what I was thinking of when it when I was reading the ending because the ending you know the film was sort of to describe what happens in that bit in the scripts was ridiculous. It was just like one sentence in the, in the, in the script, but then, you know, he, he's editing this extraordinary visual soundscape journey. I've not seen it. I can't wait to see it in cinema because I'm sure it'll be a great, it'll be an onslaught of the senses, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had the Have experience. You seen, you seen it in the cinema? No, sadly I wasn't able to. I, I, I had that experience of, uh, as I said to Ben, I saw it exactly as you intended on my computer with my name <laughs> obliterating half the screen. Uh, <laughs> but I did watch it with headphones and I thought right. that was a, a really great experience. I'd love to see it with a bunch of people. I'd love to see it in the big screens, yeah. you know, being assaulted by the sound, but being immersed in the soundscape, I thought was really interesting. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I bet um, that will transport you. I mean, it will be a bit of an endurance test as well, I suspect, which is quite good because that's what is going through. That's what's happening to the characters. So I think you will want that sort of, you're going to be there very much with them wanting to get out of the theatre <laughs> like they want to get out of that woods. And you can't, you're not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> and without giving too much away, obviously your character Sack is—he <laughs> is the uh, the cue for the film to to uh, start racing towards its dark heart, shall we say? And well, yeah. what I loved about uh, your portrayal in this is how amiable he is, how reasonable sounding he is, even though the things he's doing are not always reasonable. Yeah, well, that was definitely because um, I said to to Ben quite—I said how much. And he was on to it straight away because I said, Shall I, I really want to play it. Like, I am genuinely going to help them when they meet me in the woods. And um, I'm a, you know, a, a real um, beacon of light because it's like fantastic. We're going to get out of here. And he said, yeah, but for about, the audience will think that for about 20 seconds. <laughs> so, and I suddenly thought, oh, yeah, of course, yeah. I can't really hide it for very long, but I'm not potentially all I seem. So in some way that was that allowed me off the hook. And yeah, I never wanted to play it that he was clearly um, completely uh, psychotic or whatever he might end up being from the beginning. The reasonableness, I think, is one of the scary things about, you know, when you see people that are so sure and um, calm, mm-hmm. that's, and they're saying the most extraordinary sort of the, the thing you don't want them to be saying about situations <laughs> that's when you go oh no please because i don't think i'm going to be able to persuade you any other way and that's scary because it's like you're unwavering in your what you're going to do to me mm. have and you that, met people like that or is that something that you've yeah. seen uh, pro- proliferate think, uh, on social media yeah i would i would be frightened of such a person so i thought that's what's good about that doing it that way rather than or screaming and shouting and that's sort of a bit first route and maybe might be frightening for some people can't bear noise but Ultimately, I think going leaning the other way and playing it quite calm and still was more until he needs to be a bit more, you know, there is final outbursts. But uh, yeah, I just thought that was a a better way. And I I thought weirdly with his long hair and his beard, he's got some sort of he's at one with nature. And I think he feels quite contented and, you know, guru like. And that's that's very chilling, I think, to think. He's got some sort. He's got it sorted in his head, and he wants to explain it to you. But mm. you will be, they'll be bending and bowing to make you fit, yes. rather than 
any sort of dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you're obviously a student of horror films. You're obviously a student of comedy as well. I wanted to ask about the your Bob Bunkhouse experience because I was watching a documentary yeah. about Bob Bunkhouse a few years ago, and it was a. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, but I've you know, put in context for the listeners. The um, it was one of his, I think one of his last stand-up gigs was, was it for last? it was his last stand-up gig, yeah. And uh, you were in the audience. It was a group of uh, young comedians as well. What was that? What was that like? Because you guys seemed enraptured by him. Yeah, he was quite extraordinary. Because no, we don't, you know, look at it now, and it looks it's some sort of document of his last stand-up gig. But at the time, it was just he's doing an, he's doing a stand-up gig. And how brilliant. And David Williams said to me, do you want to go and see it? I've got tickets. And I was like, of course, it's be amazing to see him. And there he was. It was very, and it wasn't really, I mean, it was sort of standard, but it was sort of um, trip down memory lane. It was very reminiscent and rueful and it was moving. You know, it was fantastic because he, I think we knew he was ill, but uh, he was still completely all there. And then in, in the midst of, telling all these stories about Peter Sellers and all these, you know, extraordinary experiences he's had over the film career that he had as well as everything else. He um, was talking about creating worlds and talking about the goons. And he, he in the same breath mentioned, as he said, and of course, that's, that's the League of Gentlemen. And it was like, oh my God, he's seen it. And it was, I was, I was really uh, blown away that he'd even seen it. You know, I knew that he would know David and, John Coleshaw was in the audience and various other people. I thought, I don't know what you might not have said. I don't think you'll have seen my thing. And he had, and he absolutely referenced it and got it completely. And I thought, of course you have. You're completely a um, scholar in comedy. And he always was up to date with everything new. And it was just a really lovely um, moment because it was like, here's someone that really, you know, knows his onions and he's in, and he's, he's commented on our work. Like it's a thing, like it's a real thing. He still thought quite new then and like, I don't know if anyone's even watching it, but Bob Monkhouse mentioning it was quite something. Yeah. And it will, it was captured on film because they filmed it. I didn't know until many years later when it came out in that BBC four documentary that mm. they filmed it. And there we all were like little young fledglings all listening <laughs> enraptured. And there's a, I, I can't imagine what it was like being in that room because there, there was something about, you know, you know, the way you and Steve are so specific about, your performances and are so specific about your comedy seems to me to chime with Bob Bunkhouse's approach. I mean, he the, the specificity of what he was doing was he was so meticulous about his approach yeah. that you wouldn't think there's a lot of crossover there, but there is to me from the outside looking in. Yeah, and I think as a scriptwriter as well, he he's, he crafted it and honed it and worked it in the in the way that I hope that we never lightly end up with a, a final draft. We work and work and work and really try hard to polish and polish and he was you know and i know the criticism of, of bob sometimes was that he was too immaculate but you know it, it's um that was his style and i think you know you can't you can't get away from how sort of like diamonds he, he he delivered those those lines it was it was like a science and he was creating perfect equations of and and that equals a laugh you know and it felt like very much like that was what he was doing and yeah very inspirational for us because he was the writing is everything, you know, without the writing, you can get so far with the performance, but I think ultimately you start to see the cracks if it's not um, well-written. And uh, when increasingly in our careers, we've gone down the, the rabbit hole of trying to create more and more amazing jaw-dropping stories, which is becoming a tyranny in its own right, but um, <laughs> it's, it's a challenge. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's true. It's it's uh, I you know I have I have views about the prevalence of improvisation in modern yeah. comedy. Um, I think if there's a time and a place for it, then it's fine. But the Pythons didn't improvise. They got into a room and they they absolutely hashed out every single line, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I think it's um, you could argue when when you're sat in a room toiling away like what we do. There's a version of it where you just go in a, you don't do any of that and you just turn up on the night and it's just, and you think you've done the same thing. I don't think it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not at all. But um, I just want to ask real, really quick because um, obviously, as you mentioned, you and Steve wrote uh, series six and series seven pretty yeah. much on Zoom. Do you still do that weird ritual where one of you has to find the other dead in the morning, or is that something that you? Yeah, only put yesterday hold? I went into the room to the office because we we're meeting up now in real life, and he was in the corner. He wasn't dead. He was. He's got. There's a little weird Pierrot mask that we've got in the. In, I think it was on the South Bank show about us as well. And he had that on in the corner. He was hiding like at the end of Don't Look Now behind the sofa, just beckoning me in the little tiny hand movement. So he wasn't dead then, but it was like a, some sort of weird demon. <laughs> just as good. And at that moment, nature is healing. Yes, exactly. Which, which brings us back to in the earth. Oh yeah, man. <laughs> Full circle, brings stuff. Rhys Shearsmith, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Cheers. Take care. And that was Rhys Shearsmith, and we will be talking about In the Earth in the second part of this podcast, because that is it for part one of this week's bumper-sized, jam-packed two-part Empire podcast. Join us whenever you can for part two, in which we will be talking to Jimmy Smith's star of In the Heights, not In the Earth. And you'll be hearing an excerpt from our Godzilla vs. Kong spoiler special interview with that film's director, Adam Wingard, as well. Plus, we'll be talking about all the week's movie news and reviewing a whole bunch of films, including In the Heights, In the Earth, and Luca. Can't say much fairer than that. So don't think of this as a goodbye. Think of this as a brief parting of the ways. See you soon. Bye.